0: Welcome to The Dirt on the Past, a program of the Extreme History Project that explores the good, the bad, and the ugly about our human past. Because, let's face it, Crystal. Yep,
1: history very often isn't pretty, but it is so important to know. Because
0: it is the very thing that has led us to the most critical concerns that we have in the present. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, and me, Crystal Alegria, as we talk to archaeologists and historians who've been digging in the dirt, and in the archives, to uncover the fascinating histories that are not only relevant to today's issues,
1: but which help us better understand how to address them.
0: Welcome, everybody, to this new season of The Dirt on the Past, and to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the KGVM offices speaking via Zoom with author Kate Moore about her book, The Woman They Could Not Silence. And we're super excited to talk with Kate. But first, Crystal, I want to check in. It's been a while. We've had a little hiatus over the summer. Um, tell me about your week and more. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We have we took a few months off, which was great. Uh, we had a busy summer with Extreme History Project, with uh, walking tours, and with our lecture series that we've kind of reinstalled. And then also with the documentary that I've talked about on, on here before, we... Kicked that off in early August. We did some debuts and screenings. Okay, and, you have to talk about that because you yeah, just had a screening know, last night right I here know. in Bozeman,
0: and it was fantastic. Yeah,
1: we did. We, we had a screening of the documentary, which is called The Story of Us, The Women Who Shape Montana. And it is a documentary about four of Montana's historic women, including Sarah Bigfoot, Maggie Smith-Hathaway, Susie Walking bear Yellowtail, and Rose Humley and so the the documentary is about these four women and it goes through their lives and we did our kickoff Premiere in Helena, Montana, on August third, and then we did our Bozeman debut last
0: night. Last night, yeah. to a full house, to a full packed audience. Museum of the Rockies. It was it was amazing. It was amazing.
1: And thanks, Nancy, for being there too, because we filmed some of the documentary on your land. So,
0: <laughs> but we had a great question and answer that you yeah. set up afterwards too with a filmmaker, yeah. um, Kim. Coburg, I always forget her last name, and yeah. Diane Sands, yeah. who was also in there. Um, I didn't know if Mary Murphy was in the audience, but our she... own Mary Murphy was in the film.
1: Yeah, so Mary Murphy was in the film, and I really wanted to, her to be at this Bozeman debut, but she is away for the month of September, so uh, she wasn't be, able to be at this one, but she is going to be able to be at the one in Butte that's going to happen Fantastic. in October. So, so she really wanted to be there last night, but Diane Sands was there. And she was spectacular, as she always is. Diane Sands is a a state legislator here in, in Montana, but also a women's historian. And, and she really talked about women's history and its fullness in Montana and the West. And really talked about why it's relevant and important today with this question and answer. And then Kimberly Hoburg, the filmmaker was there and answered a lot of questions about the process of making a documentary and, wow. and why, yeah. why she wanted to make this and why she asked extreme history to be a part of it. And, um, and so it was really a great question and answer session. And, and it was so fun to have so many, Um, participants and people who helped with the film in the audience and so we had um, a lot of a lot of people and it was fun to kind of highlight the stars of the show which um Shane Doyle a board member of the extreme history project and a long lifelong friend of both Nancy and I um he was there with his whole family and they were all in the film so (laughs) He was was singing and drumming, the kids were dancing, dancing. it was beautiful. It was, it was. So it was just a great night, it was a great celebration, and um, we're going to do more screenings over the next year, and then it will air on Montana PBS probably by the end of this year, and then into the next year, probably um, more primetime slots in January and February, but we'll definitely get it in... um, Probably in December on Montana PBS as well.
0: Well, it was a wonderful experience. And as a board member of the Extreme History Project, mm. we are all incredibly proud of the work mm. that, that you did and that you accomplished. And it's wonderful to have it out there. And it's wonderful. It's going to reach a wider audience. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks, Nancy. Of
1: course. So what about you? How was your summer? Oh, goodness gracious.
0: <laughs> you <laughs> know a little so bit about how my summer was. <laughs> yes. So daughter off to college at um, Boise State. And alongside of that, we opened two new locations. One is a men's store and one is a campus location that has both men's and women's clothing right there on campus. So new staff. A whole new turn, so business has been keeping me busy, but now I feel like I can get back to the other part of my brain and turn my attention back to history, archaeology, lecture series podcast, so it's good to be back. Good, I'm glad,
1: I'm glad, and it's great to be back on the podcast with you, and I know you had a very busy summer, so it's great to be sitting at this table again, Yes. but we should probably get back to our guest. We should get back to our guest. We are so glad to have you with us today, Kate. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much. It's lovely
1: to be here.
0: Yes, welcome, Kate. I want to start off, as we always do, by telling our listeners a little bit about you, because you're probably already well known to some of them as a New York Times bestselling author of The Radium Girls, which won the 2017 Goodreads Choice Award for Best History, and was voted U.S. Librarian's Favorite Nonfiction Book of 2017, and went on to become not only a New York Times bestseller, but also a bestseller with USA Today and the Wall Street Journal. So Kate Moore as some of you may not know, is based in London, and she writes across multiple genres, including history, biography, true crime, and more. Her work has been featured across international media and translated into more than 15 languages. She has a degree in English from the University of Warwick, and later became a very successful nonfiction editor, and eventually an editorial director with Penguin Random House UK. She published the book that we're going to talk about today, The Woman They Could Not Silence, in 2021. And this is her newest book. We're so
1: glad you're here with us today, Kate. And as a writer, you've written about so many different topics and in so many different genres. But your last two books have been about American history. What draws you to write about history and especially women's social history?
2: Well, how I sort of started down this career path was completely unexpected and serendipitous. As you say, I I was writing all sorts of different books. I had never written a history book. I did English at college, as you said, so not a historian by, you know, learning or anything like that. Um, But I essentially fell in love with the Radium Girls story. Um, I was directing a play about them. I researched my theatre production because I knew that it was based on a true story. And through that research discovered there was no narrative nonfiction book that told their story that celebrated the radium girls as individuals with personal triumphs and tragedies and that sort of walked in step with them on their remarkable historical journey. And so I decided, you know, if no one else has written this book, I really think the radium girls deserve that book. And that's how it came to be. That's why I decided to write it. And then, as Nancy said, it just completely snowballed and became this incredibly successful book, you know, New York Times bestseller, and readers really appreciated it, which was amazing. Um, So it was all completely unexpected to me. You know, when I was writing it at my kitchen table in London, I had no idea that it would blow up in the way that it did. And then, having experienced that, um, I obviously wanted, you know, my sort of thoughts were thinking about, well, what do I write next? And Elizabeth's story came to me because I was inspired by the Me Too movement. And I wanted to write about some of the issues that were being raised in that incredible time when women were finally being listened to and believed. And I thought, well, how can I write about this? And as someone who had written one history book, um, what I wanted to do was to go back in history and try to find one woman's story that would encapsulate, you know, the theme that I wanted to write about, which was women being silenced through the claim that we're mad, that we're crazy, even though we're not. And so at my heart, what I am is a storyteller. You know, it might be a historical story, or it might be a story on stage. But what I do is, is I tell stories. And I therefore went looking for a story that I could tell that would make readers think about that, Long standing claim that women are mad when they speak out, when they use their voices, even though we're not. And that's how the second book came to be. So I think, in short, I'm drawn to stories that speak about justice because they're both about justice and they're intimate portraits of incredible women. That's what interests me about them. And I think, as well, both of the books that I've written are history books. But both of them have themes that are incredibly resonant in the modern age.
0: I love that thread that something that was going on right in your in your life right before all of us. It took you to look for sort of the origins of uh, not necessarily the origins because it goes much farther back, but of silencing women in this in this way where a lot of legal infrastructure and cultural infrastructure is is what's wielded against them but before we get on to that next question um this has been puzzling me because i've listened to several other podcasts and things you've spoken on and you keep talking about this play you're directing and so i want to yeah. back up a little yeah. bit yeah that's important <laughs> so did you write the play did you find the play and how I, did I you found, end up directing I found a play okay yeah
2: i found the play and literally through google so um my passion is theatre, you know, at the time, as you say, I was, I was working in publishing as a, as an editor, and, and on the side of my publishing career, I had always maintained my love of theatre, I had acted in productions, and in 2014, I made my directorial debut, directing Lorca's Blood Wedding, and adored the experience, you know, it was, I was in my Sort of mid-30s I think at that point when I did that and it was incredible you know <laughs> as I thought at the time relatively late in life <laughs> to discuss something that I love doing that i had never done
1: before
0: well we sort and of so know what that's like yeah, yeah we can relate yeah. to the late <laughs> in life <laughs> career kind of zigzag yep yeah, yeah yeah
2: so um so literally the week after blood wedding finished I was sat on my sofa googling great plays for women because I wanted to find another play that I could put on that I could direct and a play that came back was called The Shining Lives by Melanie Marnich and it's about the radium girls and so from that one google search you know following my passion for telling stories on stage through direction that's how I found the story so it was a play written by someone else but based on the true historical events of what happened to the Radium Girls.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, so really a story-driven woman here that we're talking to, whether it's play or whether it's in nonfiction. So the book that we're talking about today, The Woman They Could Not Silence, tells the story of Elizabeth Packard. She is a wife to... Theophilus, is that how you say his Theophilus. name? Theophilus, yeah. Mm, yeah. Lovely name. I uh, almost named my son that, um, but just switched <laughs> to Aiden at the last second. Um, wife and mother of six who uh, was committed to an insane asylum by her husband after 21 years of marriage. Um, so the story that you're telling takes place. It really kind of starts getting going in 1860, which we all know is that pivotal time in American history when the Civil War begins and it's really not all that long ago. So um, maybe we can start off this conversation with having you give a little bit of background about Elizabeth Packard, who she was even before she got married and as she got married to her husband Theophilus, a little bit about him aside from his very wild curly red hair. Um, <laughs> and uh what it was that led him to determine that he should commit his wife to an insane asylum?
2: Sure. Well, even before she was committed and this sort of chapter in her life began, Elizabeth was a remarkable woman. So before her marriage, she taught school. um she was an educated woman, she you know received a first class education herself, and she went to on to teach. And at the age of 19, she was a principal um, of an academy in Massachusetts. And what I found interesting in my research was in a sort of, you know, nostalgia piece written 70 years after she had taught. Hers was one of you know, the very few names of the teachers that were remembered in that nostalgia piece, which to me showcases how good she was as a teacher and what an impression she made that 70 years later, you know, people were reminiscing wow. about yeah. her time as a teacher so she was a brilliant woman and she was very go-getting and she was the kind of woman who you know she obviously at at that time had to give up her career when she did get married to Theophilus and went on to become a mother of six but she was the kind of woman that even though she had to give up her career she threw her all into becoming a domestic goddess basically so reading about her achievements in the household are extraordinary. You know, she designed and made her children's clothes. She would garden, she would cook, um, she would, you know, make tapestries and, you know, decorated the entire house, um, you know, while she was, um, you know, very soon, um, I think she was still breastfeeding, if I remember rightly from my research. and she, um, you know, decorated the entire house um, from top to bottom. Uh, You know, just one of those women who just got everything done. So that's
0: Elizabeth. I would have not wanted to be in her mommy group. She would have made me feel really (laughs) terrible about myself, honestly. Um, And and it seemed like all her children were healthy. Tell us a little bit about how she came to be married to Theophilus.
2: So I mean, that's an interesting one. And he was a much older. He's a much older person. He's um, fifteen years her senior, and he was an old colleague of her father. Mm. Um, And I think there was an element of, you know, she writes about marrying to please my pa. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's worth saying that Theophilus's father was a very brilliant man, you know, renowned for his speaking and his uh, theological achievements Mm -hmm. and so on. And I think Elizabeth perhaps thought she was getting a bit of that in marrying the son. But Theophilus Packard Jr. was not at all that man. Mm. He is timid. He is lazy um he is self-centered he is a hypochondriac
0: and no um, previous love- wives he didn't have like a a really no. a bunch of women trying to snag him huh he was <laughs> no. really looking for help from a friend be like hey your daughter she's kind of past maybe yeah. her prime she's 22 um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> i could take her off your hands it's, it's it sounds like she went into it with such a great attitude given what it probably really was
2: yeah. yeah. And and it's, you know, I read his diary as part of my research and, you know, that's a summer of my life. I will never get back. You know, so how Elizabeth put up with him for 21 years, I have absolutely no I idea. Do. You know, she, wow. she was remarkable just yeah. for doing that. Yeah. Um, so this was really a, a sort of clash of of personalities and um, sort of characters, even from the start, you know, she's this brilliant woman. Um, You know, people talk about her being the, the, you know, the centre of any crowd that she comes into. She has this magnetism, um, this, you know, ability, uh, you know, to be charismatic, uh, to to talk fluently um, about whatever it is that she's passionate about, to, to get things done. You know, she's that kind of person. And then you've got this sort of, you know nothing of a of a man that she's married to um and so i think
0: the and that's historically the- accurate that's just not your opinion right i mean <laughs> no, <laughs> you said you read his diary and was a know. snore <laughs> <laughs> perhaps self-admittedly yeah no yeah. i don't know but it's fascinating because we all know women like elizabeth and you always hope that there's a match that works for for people like that, who have so much to give in the world, and you don't want them yeah. to be held back even mm-hmm. today, we can very much relate yeah, yeah. to yeah. that.
2: Yeah, so yeah. So, where so did- I, I think the sort of, um, you know, I, I think they were almost always gonna end with, uh, you know, the sort of uh, a clash at some point, and that became even more likely um, after the National Women's Rights Convention uh, was held in 1848, uh, that's when the first one was held, and elizabeth was inspired by this women's rights movement that was sweeping the country and you know you've got elizabeth kate stanton um you know
0: giving speeches so you know, changing yeah, laws yeah, yeah. in new york and new ideas you know, and
2: yeah exactly mm-hmm. new ideas and and, you know, and the idea crucially that a woman you know can have her own mind can have her own voice you know can have her own opinions And Elizabeth is, um, you know, swept up with this idea and the idea of her own self. Um, You know, for years, she's been in Theophilus's shadow. She's been stuck in the kitchen. Um, This is sort of, you know, it's giving her energy and and life and and, and breath, you know, to to sort of become who she is. And this obviously clashes with Theophilus, who doesn't want his wife to assert her own opinions, to have an opinion that's different from his own. Mm -hmm. But Elizabeth being the incredible woman that she was, you know, is is like, no, you know, I, I this is a different time. I am gonna speak out. I, I am going to contradict you in public if I disagree with what you're saying. Um but that's a very dangerous thing for a woman to do, particularly in eighteen sixty. But even today we see, you know, sometimes the consequences when that happens. Right. In Elizabeth's day, however, it's particularly dangerous because both the legal setup at the time gave her husband complete power over her. There was a law known as coverture in 1860, which essentially said um, the husband and the wife are one in law, and that one is the husband. And it meant that a woman, a wife, had no legal identity at all. She could not own property, she could not have custody of her children because she didn't exist as you know a civic person. Um, And it meant that her husband had control over her liberty. He was literally able, should he wish to, to send her to an insane asylum by request and without any evidence of insanity at all. And that's not just me telling you that. That is actually what was written in law.
0: Mm. Um, And the other
2: dangerous point for Elizabeth at this time is that the doctors believed that a woman who was contradicting her husband Um, or being assertive in any way, or have an ambition to read, to, to study, to use her brain. These were seen as signs of madness.
0: You talk about novel reading as being an especial sign of madness, and my goodness, now today we've gone the other way, right? Because there's a lot of money to be made in women reading novels, but it's so interesting to think back then that that was a particular sign. That was, I mean, it just seems to me the the worry the worry that men had of what would happen when women would read novels. It it just seems such an obvious means of control um, of yeah. of brain body. And ownership over any means of her own labor and production
2: you know. completely I mean I, I was sort of shocked really you know because it, it literally is listed in in black and white in the hospital records you know the causes of insanity that have brought women within its walls a novel reading is there as a cause wow. of insanity as to wow. why someone has been locked up.
1: What were some of the others that you that you read about that you noticed when you were doing this research? Mm-hmm. In addition well, to
2: that, one, one key one to, to talk about is a change of life or menstrual oh, trouble. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was another problem.
0: I would have Elizabeth been committed and- for sure, for yeah. sure. I mean, I yeah. literally, yeah, a yeah. couple weeks out of every month, I would have just been a, <laughs> gon- a goner.
2: but so. yeah. when that was it, doctors genuinely believe that a woman's menstrual cycle could drive her mad. Mm. Um, you know, and they used to, I mean, it's sounds absolutely ridiculous but doctors would publish advice for mothers to try to delay the onset of their mm. daughter's periods because mm-hmm. they wanted you know to protect these adolescents from you know the the risk of, of, a, of a period and so they tell them to do things like um avoid feather beds um avoid eating red meat um mm. you know that sort of thing you know ridiculous things that yeah. essentially were supposed to help them um, not have their periods
1: wow so so what happened? What was the, the thing that kind of sent the offices over the edge? What caused, what caused him to stand up and assert his rights as a husband?
2: Um, essentially, it was Elizabeth diverging from him in religious thought. So essentially, um, she becomes so confident in her own opinion that she decides to leave Theophilus's church and obviously that is such a complete rejection of him as a minister, as a husband, that he feels he has to take action. But I also uncovered during my research um, and for me it was the first time I'd sort of read this um, so it was you know one of those exciting moments for me as a researcher because I'd not seen anyone join these dots before. But it turned out that Theophilus's Church at this time, you know, on the cusp of the Civil War, it had switched its creed. So whereas previously it was pro-abolition, it switched its, its creed and um, probably about six months before Elizabeth is sent to the asylum, and it decides to be ambivalent about it. It sits mm-hmm. on the fence and it doesn't pronounce either way as to whether it's for or against abolition. So Elizabeth is very pro-abolition and essentially. You know, the key divergence between her and Theophilus is that he, as the preacher, will now no longer speak out against slavery. Okay. And she's like, slavery is wrong. And I'm not going to worship in this church that tells me that it's, it, you know, it doesn't have an opinion on the matter that is sitting on the sidelines and not, you know, not doing the right moral thing. Um, and she would, you know, speak out about her own views in parties you know sort of social parties that the deacons were having and things like this and so she became a problem because if everyone follows her charismatic you know inspiring lead and leaves the church then theophilus is going to have no congregation and his bosses are going to be outraged and he was very heavily in debt and Mm. you know all of this kind of thing so there were a lot of it wasn't just the personal clash of their characters that motivated him it was also the political situation and um, his financial and career situation that motivated him to lock up his woman his wife who would not be silenced
0: can i read just a little bit too because this there's so many layers to this but in early on in the book you talk a, a little bit about theophilus's um religious beliefs and how they extend to his children and you say he felt their hearts were quote wrong by nature and must be changed by grace for their own good. He told them bluntly describing the hellish fate that awaited them until the children would cry and Elizabeth would try to comfort them. And, um, she felt that her religious influence, her irreligious influence would cause Theophilus unspeakable grief because he himself was worried for his children's souls. And so there was just so much right in the household. Um, where he would be bringing really kind of scary thoughts and hellishness and and fear into the way they just spoke to their children and and raised the family. So even if it were just that, but yeah. then you get into these political and economic layers with his livelihood and and you can see then that he realizes he has this tool. Yeah. And he's probably
1: getting pressured from, you know, his the the, uh, men around him and the community around him, his religious community. Yeah. Um, So 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 then what is the ultimate um, result of this?
2: So essentially, she wakes up one morning and there's been a lot of tension in the household. She is fearful. She's anxious. She's not slept. And she goes to her window and looks out and there are four men, including her husband coming to the house and she just has an instinctive fear. So she runs to the door and she locks it and she's, you know, still undressed at the moment. She's literally just got out of bed. So, um, you know, she's in a state of undress and the door handle rattles. They can't get in because she's locked the door and she's rushing around, like trying to get her head together, trying to, protect herself for modesty and then an axe comes hacking through the window and essentially they break into her bedroom and they carry her off and they carry her off to get on a train to be taken to the asylum and forcibly committed against her will
1: hmm. i can't even imagine that and and that all and, and happened ca- you know carried away from home from, yeah, from her children's
2: children you know her her baby is 18 months old you know it's only been a couple of months since she stopped breastfeeding he's you know Mm -hmm. just starting to sort of babble and you know say mom you know mama mama and things like that and she's torn away Mm -hmm. from her children um and carried off to this horrendous place
1: Mm -hmm. i can't imagine it must that first night in the asylum she must have just been in such shock and and um disbelief about what had just happened to her and what she had just gone through and what she was looking towards. So so tell us a little bit about her life um in these first few days and weeks in the asylum. What did that look like? And what and and maybe talk about what an asylum looked like at that point in time. And this is in eighteen sixty. And this is this also is- in Illinois, um just to mention that as well, kind of putting yeah, us in a place. Right, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, so it's Jacksonville in Jacksonville. Illinois. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right. You know, that first night, she is afraid and she's shell-shocked. Um, she can't believe it's happened. Um, mm-hmm. And But she she's Elizabeth Packard. So she wakes up the next morning and she's determined that she will find a way out, that all is not lost. You know, she hasn't seen a doctor yet. Surely once the doctor sees her and talks to her, you know, they'll see that she's not insane and she can mm-hmm. go home. Um, And she is shocked when she gets up that first morning and, you know, walks into the dining room because it's not what she thought an asylum would be like. Um, The table is laid with a cloth. There is glass and china, um, you know, being laid for breakfast. And the women around her are... Normal, you know, they're normal women. Um, She was surrounded by women who were like her, which meant that they were middle class, they were educated, many of them were married. Um, And as she gets chatting to them over the next few days, she's sort of stunned to realize that they're all the same as she is. And, you know, quoting from doctor's notes of the era, women would be sent away and accepted into institutions for causing the greatest annoyances to their family. Mm -hmm. Women were sent away for defying all domestic control. So these were women who had essentially sort of pushed the boundaries of what a woman was supposed to be or do. And that's why they'd been sent to an because asylum. Because
0: it was fathers, brothers, and husbands. It, it was all of those that's men. It, the, the, mayor, the depending male on her status at that time, who would be her considered her guardian? Who, yes, yeah. So mm-hmm. that all of those men had that ability to mm-hmm. put them in, and and then I, I feel like it's this horrible um twisted version of like the real housewives of jacksonville where all of a sudden they're mm-hmm. sitting around talking about their situation but she's then she meets the doctor and he recognizes her intellect he he you have documents he says nice things about her how she yeah. looks her appearance mm-hmm. her manner it's clear in the beginning right it's clear he knows she's not yes. crazy and i think over the course of your book it's fascinating to see what the change happens there where the doctor then eventually goes from being who she considers a friend who she can trust to an enemy can you talk a little bit about that transition and and what that tells us about these asylums and how they were structured how they operated and why she was only seeing women who were like herself at, at that particular first few days
2: Yeah, so the doctor is Dr. Andrew McFarland. He was the superintendent of the Illinois State Hospital. And their relationship is fascinating. I mean, Elizabeth in those sort of first few weeks is really swept off her feet. You know, as I say, she spent 21 years married to this awful, boring older man. And McFarland is cultured and sensitive. You know, he writes poetry. He quotes Shakespeare in his essays um, she considers him good looking. He's six months younger than she is. Um, he provides a shoulder to cry on, you know, and uh, um, he talks about that. She talks about the laying on of hands. Yes. You know, he was obviously mm-hmm. very
0: tactile um what does that mean exactly do you know i yeah. know yeah. The,
1: I, I i wondered very you know curious yeah. that. very curious about very curious because you There's mentioned
0: some... the kiss part
1: but the, yeah. later but the yeah. laying of the hands i'm like mm. that's interesting so would yeah. you do you do you want to speak more to that or do you <laughs> do you want to just leave it as laying of hands <laughs> <laughs> well all, all the historical documents
2: say is, is laying on of hands that elizabeth later Considered it inappropriate.
1: Okay.
2: Um, so I, th- I think we'll just, we just have to read between we'll the just lines. go with, that. Go with <laughs> that. Yeah.
0: Whatever inappropriate was <laughs> yeah. at that time, which yeah. is probably still inappropriate today. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yes. Yes.
2: Yeah. Um, but yeah, their their relationship really does evolve, and you're right. You know, he's he himself actually is quite swept away by her when they meet. You know, he praises her fine mind and brilliant imagination, her most rare command of language. And um, you know he I thought I was getting him. a
0: love story here first Kate and then yeah. it really <laughs> really, really, work, really left really turn yeah. on me so yeah let's yeah. hear it
2: <laughs> well I mean the problem really is you know Elizabeth as I say you know is a little bit in love with him uh, and he's very respectful of him you know she admires his intellect uh, the intellectual conversations that they have together and so she thinks well this is going to be fine you know I I just have to show him that I'm you know, I just showing me basically, and and it will be fine. He'll he'll let yeah. me go. Um, and again, Elizabeth being Elizabeth, the, the longer she spends at the asylum, the more concerned she becomes about all these sane women around her. Um, you know, she wants to give McFarlane the benefit of the doubt. You know, perhaps they were insane until he cured them, and that's mm-hmm. why they're all sane now. You know, mm-hmm. so she gives him the benefit of the doubt to begin with.
0: But there's still. But after four months, a uh, clue.
2: Yeah, After four months, she has learned by this time as well that there are from lower wards there are allegations of abuse and mistreatment, and she herself has witnessed. The way that the women's spirits are crushed, the way that if they grieve for the children, you know, who they're denied, you know, visits from, they can't see them. You know, the the very fact they're in the asylum means they're missing their children growing up. They're not
0: able to be Denied visits from their children. And Mm -hmm. I mean, so horrible, but lots of other indignities as well, you mentioned.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that hair would be forcibly Cut, um, you know, there, there would be, um, you know, she recalls seeing one woman sort of, you know, held down and uh, sort of stripped. And, um, you know, there was, she on this sort of privilege ward that she was on did not witness at this time the worst degradation and the worst abuse that, that actually was going on in the asylum. But she's concerned enough by the fact that the women aren't allowed to cry that they essentially um, have to cut themselves to the asylum's pattern. You know, the, she calls it a subduing treatment um, and she herself recognises she's been sent to the asylum to be broken in. You know, as I say, all these women are women who have defied the control that their families have tried to assert over them. And so what they have to do in the asylum is the doctors are trying to teach them how to behave in the correct manner socially. And so that's what she's seeing going on. It's a crushing of spirit until the women are. Because she to was be given all these spin.
0: privileges, Kate. She was given the key. Yes, yeah, she, she, she was almost she, like a staff member. She you know, didn't she have to get. Patient-
2: out and-
0: yeah, she could do all sorts of things, and I think you were she saying people recognize to the asylum. they didn't even worry call. about her oh, leaving she- or something yeah. and and I think yeah. other people there seemed to, as you say, see her as somebody who might then be able to help, but they there was also those warnings and mm-hmm. and i and and hey, d- do not trust this doctor, and these things are going on yeah. and it does seem then she starts to question him and to kind of do her own bit of investigating, which puts her in peril, I suppose.
2: Mm -hmm. Exactly. It puts her on a collision course with McFarlane, really, because she's not going to, you know, allow these things that she's witnessing and that she's becoming concerned about to go unsaid. You know, she wants, you know, she decides she's going to confront him, you know, both about what's going on in the wider asylum, but also about her own case And, you know, she can appreciate that her case stands as a a test case. You know, if he keeps her locked up when she's clearly so sane and she knows that she's never done anything that could be construed as, you know, acting in a mad way. If he keeps her, then what does it say about all the other women that she's met? You know, he is then incarcerating women, you know, simply because they're not you know, conforming to what society expects of them. And it's worth saying that in this era, you know, the actual psychiatric theory was something called moral insanity, which can be defined essentially as eccentricity of conduct. Anyone who acted eccentrically, be that a woman who wanted to go and get a degree um, or a man who was particularly emotional, you know, because that was eccentric when you put it in the context of the era you know, those people were deemed to be insane. That was the textbook reasoning. Um, Now Elizabeth is someone who over time really despises her husband for what he's done to her. You know, this is construed as evidence of madness in Elizabeth's case, because she's so angry with her husband, but women are supposed to not be angry and wives are supposed to adore their husbands. And any woman who doesn't fit that box is deemed to be mad. Mm. Um, So anyway, Elizabeth confronts McFarland. And this is a turning point in their relationship because the moment she stands up to him, she loses that privileged position and she is sent down Mm. to the lower wards where there is no hope of escape and where she's thrown in with genuinely mentally ill people, violent people, um, you know, people who... You know, genuinely need help,
0: right? And who aren't really getting it, and who are getting no help, and not getting it at all. You know, they're getting
1: they're getting violence in return for their violence, yeah. And and so and
2: and again, you know, credit to Elizabeth and the kind of person she was. Again, you know, the first night she sent away, and she, you know, sees what's around her. You know, these awards that are filthy. You know, the patients are not cared for. You know, they're literally urinating on the floor. They're writing on the walls with their faeces, you know, they're running, howling, screaming around the ward. You know, she's in a dormitory rather than a private room, you know, sharing a room with people who are are, are shouting, are violent, are banging, you know, bed pails around the the walls, you know, a completely different environment from the civilised ward that she has uh, just come from. Um, And, you know, she's fearful and realises her trust and respect for the doctor was misplaced. You know, he now has even more power over her than her husband even did. You know, once again, she has fallen victim, really, to to these sort of strings that the men are tweaking in her life. And so she's really low that first night. But the next morning, she looks around her with new eyes and she sees the work that is before her to do. Um, she will leave the bigger picture of her you know will she ever get out of here will she ever see her children again she will leave that in god's hands but the duties immediately before her are hers mm-hmm. and so she determines to help the patients she cleans the walls she cleans the patients she provides them with love and kindness and understanding and she transforms the hospital from the inside out
1: that was the part of the book that I was just amazed by. That that this woman at her lowest point could look around her and say, "Where can I help?" And she did it. And yeah. she moved forward. Yeah. And, and,
2: and and she and I think oh, as well, she said dying. sort of very articulately, you know, um, if she carries the burdens of others, that helps her carry her own yeah. burden. You know, it's, yeah. And and I think that's true for all of us. Actually, you know, if, if you can help someone else, it does give you a, a light inside yourself that you know, helps you carry your own load she, as she well. She gave but,
0: herself a sense yeah. of purpose instead of yeah. just wallowing in what was taken from her and stripped from her unfairly. She looked at this way to make it better. But then along the way, she's documenting yeah, and she's making raining. a broader yeah. case for all women and and anybody in society who is facing these challenges. I mean, it's it's fascinating to see how she could take the best of her faith and turn it into something that said, Oh, this must be what I have to do now. I can't be with my children. I can't raise them. Yeah. Like you yeah. said, she puts it aside. It's remarkable. It is.
1: Can you talk a little bit Kate about that documentation that she does during her time in the more genteel ward and then how she <laughs> continues to document in the, in the, in the lower ward.
2: Yeah. I'd, I'd love to talk about that actually. Cause it's one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, so, as I say, Elizabeth has always been a, a brilliant woman, you know, able to, to convincingly talk and argue and so on. But as I write in the book, you know, previously her thoughts had always evaporated like the steam above the saucepans on her stove. You know, there was nothing of her left behind in the world. But in the asylum, it, particularly, as you say, in the genteel ward at first, she is given freedom to write. And of course, she suddenly has the time to do it. So she begins a journal um, and she is writing down her thoughts and observations and you know, she sees herself take shape on the page. I think when you're able to record, to, to think that is such a gift and such a way of developing your sense of self and identity and your opinions and who you are and what's important to you. And Elizabeth is overwhelmed to be given that gift really of discovering herself. And what I love about the story is the book is called The Woman They Could Not Silence. Actually, the story that the book depicts is the story of a woman finding her voice, Mm. you know, learning how to become an unsilenceable woman. And that journey that Elizabeth goes on from someone who you know, at the beginning of the book it is a brilliant woman, but she's a housewife. She's focused on her domestic sphere. She is not writing and she doesn't have a voice. And she, you know, is very constrained. And you see in the asylum, the way she starts to discover who she is. And through that journal that she starts to record, she learns who she is and what's important. And even once she's banished to the lower wars and she is, expressly forbidden to write that's something McFarlane doesn't want her doing because he knows how convincing she is with a pen in her hand she determines she will keep recording what she is witnessing and so she steals scraps of fabric from the sewing room um you know if a nurse leaves a nubby pencil behind or something like that she squirrels it away she would tear out, you know, the margins in newspapers and scribble in that. And she hides these little scraps of journal, scraps of herself, really, you know, all over the place, you know, in the band uh, that runs around her sort of bonnet uh, in her hat box, you know, scrolled up and pinned inside her clothes where McFarland won't look. Um, And in this way, she keeps this journal of her years in the asylum. And as I say, by... By the end of it, she knows who she is. She knows that she is powerful and that she has a powerful voice. And the recording of her thoughts in this journal is what makes her powerful and how she learns to use that voice for the greater good.
0: It's, it's amazing. We're going to take a quick station break before we go on with questions, Kate. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We are speaking today with author Kate Moore about her book, The Woman They Could Not Silence.
1: So Kate, just to follow up on that last question um, and cu- and bring it to the present a, a little bit, are any of her journals any of her writings any of these little scraps of paper do any of those remain are they in a museum somewhere are they in an archive somewhere well they do remain and um, the
2: fact that they remain and i was able to read them is thanks to elizabeth herself wow. um I've talked about it. I keep repeatedly saying how amazing she was, but this um, to tell you how they exist in the modern age will really illustrate, I think, how formidable she was and how ahead of her time as well, which is a crucial thing about her, I think. So Elizabeth does eventually manage to get out of the asylum and she wants to publish her work, um, her journal, her memoir but no one will touch it. You know, this is a mad woman who's been in an asylum for years. You know, no self-respecting publisher will touch her work. But Elizabeth is so determined to support herself as a writer and to have these words out in the world that she determines she will self-publish the book. But it costs thousands of dollars to do that. And Elizabeth is penniless. She has absolutely no one to support her. So what she decides to do, essentially is crowdfund the (laughs) self-publication of her books. (laughs) Um, You know, so many modern phrases in in that sentence, but that's what she does. And she literally goes knocking on doors. And sometimes those doors are the doors that she's walking down the street. Sometimes they're the door of the mayor of Chicago. Um, And she literally travels all over the country telling her story and convincing people to give her just, 50 cents uh, as a sort of advance against getting the the full copy of the book once it's published. And she convinces thousands of people to invest in her. And in that way, she finances the publication of her books because they become.
0: It's not just her book, right? <laughs> Sorry, bestsellers. I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you up, but it's, it's not That's just right. about her, right? I mean, is that how she convinces? Because it's about this bigger, story it, what's it, happening it's about
2: a bigger story and, it, and it's about um, you know there's a political campaign going on both to protect the rights of the mentally ill who were still in the asylum but more important to Elizabeth was to champion the rights of women and to get laws changed so that other people other women didn't suffer in the same way that she did mm-hmm. so yes a lot of it a lot of you know a lot of why she wanted to publish her writing and she went on and published several books and mm-hmm. um, was to have evidence as to why the law changes that she was asking for, i.e. to give women more of a civic identity, to take away the power that their husbands had to send them to asylums. She um, published these books to illustrate the necessity of those law changes. Um, And that's partly why she told her story, yes, because, you know, she appreciated that the personal is powerful. Mm -hmm. And if you can affect someone emotionally by telling a story and illustrating the danger that women are in, and that this isn't an abstract danger, this is a real danger that is affecting real women every day in horrific ways. She appreciated that, you know, if you can convince people and touch people of that personal story, then they will make the political decisions that are needed to protect women.
1: So Kate, how long was, um, so you said she did get out, she did get out of the asylum. And so, um, can you tell us a little bit about how long she was in the asylum for, and then a little bit about what she did right after she got out of the asylum? Cause that was such a, um, awkward time for her and such a hard time for her as well. So maybe speak to that a little bit.
2: Yeah. So she's in the asylum for three years, three years before she manages wow. to get out. Um, And it's it's not really a spoiler to say that the way that she manages to get out is essentially she causes too much trouble. You know, she inspires too many other patients to rebel and use their voices. And so she's... Gotten rid of as a source, as as the doctor put it, a source of unendurable
0: annoyance. Um, (laughs) So he wants um, to get her out. He he, He wants to push her basically push her out.
2: Um, But it isn't really a freedom at all. This is Mm -hmm. what she discovers in these difficult months of of becoming so called free. Um, Is that a the threat from her husband is still ever present? That he could send her to a different asylum, and he is planning to um but it's also he has banned her from returning to the family home so she's out in the world she's staying with family in a, in another town in illinois but she's not able to be the mother that she wants to be she's not even able to see the children mm. um and so it's a very difficult time but ultimately she decides well i'm gonna go back i've got just as much right you know i have made that home with Theophilus, I'm going to go back. And it's an incredibly awkward reunion of her walking through the door and being reunited with the children she hasn't seen for three years, um, and the husband who sent her away.
0: Can I ask a a couple quick questions there? Because I think this is fascinating that she can be released, but it's not that she's being declared cured no, in the sense yeah. that her husband can just have the the one letter and get one more letter from a doctor and have her recommitted. So that threat is hanging there. So I want to understand that a little bit, Kate, but I also want to understand why you think there was no um, effort from Theophilus to to divorce her at that point and just want to be done with her and maybe keep the children.
2: Yeah. Um, well, to speak to the, um, the sort of cure, cured bit, as it were, and um, the theory um, of insanity at that time in the 19th century was that you could cure people. Um, and the way the hospitals were run, particularly the state hospitals, was that they tried to cure people. But if it turned out that you couldn't be cured, which is what the doctor decided was Elizabeth's case, she was, uh, you know, too far gone to be saved, um, then they would release the patients back out into the world because their care was better spent. On women who would learn to become obedient and docile and um, so she was released as a, as a as essentially a sort of hopeless case um that she couldn't be helped any longer at the state hospital and it wasn't fair to use those resources on such a hopeless case so that's why she was released and why theophilus you know could still have the power to to send her to a different asylum instead mm. um And your second question was... And as we get to the
0: second question, I'm curious about how her mm, care was paid for. And my second question gets to why he never attempted to divorce her, because she would be coming out and coming back, and why not just be done with her forever?
2: Yeah, well, for him, I mean, he was a, a preacher. He was a very religious man. You know, the idea for him of divorcing this woman that he had committed himself to under the eyes of God... You know that was complete anathema to him. You know, divorce at that time, you know, more for women than for men. But there was still a huge social stigma about it, and particularly a spiritual stigma as well. You know, he wouldn't have wanted to risk his soul uh, in divorcing
0: her, you know, for fear that... Wow, far better to commit her to an asylum. (laughs) And was he paying for that or was someone else bankrolling that? How does that work? No, the state was paying
2: for it. So um, when Elizabeth first went away, the state did pay for everyone. Um, At the time, while she was still in there, they changed the law so that if you had enough money, you had to pay for it yourself. But Theophilus, by this point, has lost his job. Um, So she is taken as a sort of pauper case, basically. So the state was paying for her to be in the asylum.
1: Hmm. Wow. Wow. So um,
0: let's see. Let's move on to Elizabeth's daughter, who, as the story moves forward, she is... Much later down the line. She has six children. She she maintains a relationship with them as, as she goes forward. Even, yes. even one son who she had been estranged from rebuilds that relationship, which I'm sure was a, a wonderful um, way to move forward for her. But her daughter is committed to an asylum. And I'm interested to hear you tell a little bit about what we know about that story and what Elizabeth herself might have written about that and and what we know about her thoughts and feelings about that after she has gone to such great pains, not only to get out herself, but to prevent this from happening to other women, her own daughter is then committed.
1: Yeah, so um,
2: she never published anything on this topic, but we can see by her actions, how she felt about it. So the moment she discovers Libby, her daughter, has been committed by her husband, Mm. um, she rushes to California, which is where it's happened, and she gets Libby out and she takes care of her herself. So Libby was genuinely mentally ill and she did need help. Um, You know, it's no um, coincidence that Libby is, you know, 10 years old at the time Elizabeth is committed and as the only daughter in the family all of the household duties that her mother used to do fall on her young shoulders. So she stops going to school and, and she is, you know, she is housewife and cook and cleaner mm-hmm. and, you know, nurse and, you know, child minder to her younger brothers. And um, so everything falls on her shoulders. And, you know, understandably, in later life, she does have a breakdown. There's some talk that she might be anores- anorexic as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So she's got a lot, going on um you know and we know today psychologically if your mother is ripped from you you know um then that leaves a psychological scar and that's definitely what happened in Libby's yeah. case and and so father. Elizabeth goes yeah. Uh, yeah Elizabeth goes and rescues her and essentially the two of them move into Elizabeth's eldest child's house Tof- Toffee was her son and the two of them share the front room and as I say Libby was genuinely in need of help so One of her relatives described how Toffee put some webbed wire like halfway across the room. And if they needed to contain Libby, they were able to do so through using that wire. Um, But Elizabeth slept in the same room as her. So if Libby needed her, she was right there. She nursed her. Um, One of the granddaughters talked about how she was always a bit embarrassed about her aunt, you know, being mentally ill. Um, particularly because Elizabeth and Libby would always go out for walks, um, you know. But Elizabeth felt no shame about being with her daughter, no matter what condition she was in. You know, she was there, walking proudly by her side, caring for Libby, being, you know, whatever Libby needed her to be, and she looked after her. Um,
0: like she know. knew instinctively. Had she been able to be there, this may not. Like she could only imagine what her daughter would have had to go through and i think Mm -hmm. so interestingly when you mentioned toffee the eldest son who i mean when he turned 21 he would have had the ability to get her out and just all of that closeness she had so if you have somebody who has that legal standing um even if it would have been her own son could have Mm -hmm. taken her out of the asylum if it had come to that at that point Mm. it's so interesting
1: yeah you know and when we when i was reading this I was thinking so we you know we do a lot of research on women living here in Montana and about the same time, a little bit later, um, so Elizabeth got out of the asylum in about 1865-ish. Is that right, uh, um, Kate? Three. 1863. 1863. She got out. Yeah. So, um, so non-Native people started moving here into Montana territory, not a state yet, just a territory, in the 1862, 1863, 1864 time period. And, of course, a lot of those people moving here were women. Um, And women were homesteading land themselves. They were purchasing land themselves. And so it's such a different, um, you know, so we have this a little bit of a different view of women's history here because women that were coming into this area were were. Um, I'd like to say so much more independent or so Some, much somewhere so, escaped
0: slaves. And, you've documented, Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And,
1: and of course um, enslaved people who grew up enslaved that came here and were able to purchase land and start lives here in the West. But, you know, when you were talking earlier, I was thinking, you know, of course, um, Elizabeth's in the States and this is not the United States at that point. This is a, this mm-hmm. is a, territory. Um, and so it, you know, people here, um, talk about how they're going to go back to the States, you know? So, so we always think of this as a state, but it wasn't even a state (laughs) at that point. And so women, maybe, you know, I just like to throw this out. Maybe women, um, who lived here had a little bit more freedom in that sense. And had a little bit more independence, um, I say that hesitantly because I don't really know if that's the case or not. You know, maybe it's just the the people who were coming here had um, you know a different social standing. They had different um, ideas. They weren't so entrapped
0: by religion at this or, point. Or They just didn't have any asylums yet, or we no thought about that too. too. <laughs>
1: there's there nowhere to put those women <laughs> yeah. those uppity women i don't know but i was just I mean, as a, I mean, it, yeah. interestingly
2: enough there's something occurred to when you talked about you know non-native people moving in into as you say the, the the not not states yet um andrew mcfarland later goes on and opens a private asylum and he actually takes a lot of the uh, mental patients yeah. from those new territories and a lot of them are native americans yeah, and yeah. again it's this use of psychiatry as a mm. method of control you know they need those people out of the way where do they send them let's send them to asylums you know mm-hmm. because they're acting in a mad way an eccentric way a different way and therefore we'll pack them off so the question about did they have asylums well they did in the states that were behind and that's where all the native americans right. got we
0: the they did have yeah. jails that were full pretty early on There were a fair amount of women, Mm -hmm. often women of color, Mm -hmm. Native women, that were out there. We have a a friend, Jennifer Hill, doing some kind of research along those lines. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if um, that was a holding place for Mm -hmm. women. But we also have some great stories of women um, killing their husbands. So maybe, I don't know, that was more of an option out here.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we were right before we started talking to you, Kate, we were we were thinking about when the first asylums were established here in Montana, in our neck of the woods anyway. And, and you know, a lot of them were sanitariums that then became asylums a little bit later, yeah. maybe in the 1890s. So, of course, that did become prevalent here as well. But in, in that little Space of time that you're talking about here in the West or in the you know, Montana territory anyway, I think things were a little bit different. But then, of course, as the place was civilized, and I'm using air quotes, mm-hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um the asylums were established, and women were sent to those asylums. So we have we have. Mm-hmm. Um, documentation, of course, from Bozeman that that was the town we live in, that women were being sent to our local Warm Springs Asylum. Um, and so so that did eventually catch up with us here. But maybe in that time, that early time, it was a little bit different for women. And maybe that is why they were coming here, um, to escape some of those social norms that are those that coverture and those legal um restrictions that uh, were in the states at that time as well.
0: I just wonder a lot about the role of religion in this yeah. particular case. But if you can comment on that and then also tell us a little bit moving forward about what what legal changes um, could you say maybe came out of what Elizabeth Packard was able to achieve with her publishing of her story? Yeah.
2: Um, well, the religion, you know, it obviously was central to the story in a couple of ways. You know, there was the religious divergence between Elizabeth and Theophilus that sort of is the catalyst for her being sent away. But religion also drove Elizabeth. You know, she was a very religious person. She had her own very personal relationship with God, which was another thing that Theophilus didn't like, you know, he as a minister felt he should mediate for his wife, whereas she prayed and spoke to God all the time. And, you know, they had almost, you know, she and God as the way she writes about it, had almost a quite collegiate relationship in a way. Um, so, you know, her faith drove her and supported her and, you know, got her through so many hard times and showed her a more positive way to live and inspired her. And, you know, she ultimately felt that she was doing God's work in what she chose to do. She and had, she had such say, a different you
0: know, vision of God, it sounded yeah. like, from the yeah. way you describe in the book. Her, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so so religion is hugely important to the story, particularly, you know, her personal take on it and and what it meant to her you know because it really was a huge part of who she was and and why she was successful i think as well um and in terms of laws that were changed and things you know she wasn't just a writer a best-selling writer you know who who did all this incredible um you know formidable stuff um you know given the era she was also a political campaigner you know she was going and speaking to politicians and doing not only sort of rousing public speaking in front of you know hundreds of male politicians, you know, citing her case. She was also doing that sort of soft sell stuff as well. You know, meeting them in in parlors and mm-hmm. pressing the flesh and waiting outside offices and you know having meetings in libraries for sort of smaller groups of of politicians and so on. So she was a big political campaigner as well. She was drafting bills and making recommendations and you know campaigning um and her legacy is huge in many different ways I mean a lot of the laws at that time as I as I know they continue to be today you know they can change federal laws or they can change state by state so she campaigned all over the country because a lot of um things have to be changed state by state Um, but she did things you know on the mental health side she did things like ensuring that there was oversight and inspectors In some states, she was successful in ensuring a female inspector was on the board as well, which, again, was quite revolutionary at that time. She secured the postal rights of patients because, you know, censorship for her and the curtailing of receiving. They held
0: her letters.
2: They held the letters. They didn't let her, you know. People were writing to her. She didn't get them. She didn't want to write out to other
0: people. No, no help from the outside outside world. world. Completely cut
2: off. Um, so that was something she campaigned on. Yeah. And then for women, you know, she would um, strive for equality mm-hmm. where she could get it. I think she was successful in Oregon, actually, at, at passing a law back in the um, 1870s, I think it was, that equalised husbands and wives' rights. Wow. Wow. But if she couldn't achieve that, which she mostly couldn't because it was ahead of ahead of its time back then, and let's face it, even though it's allegedly on the statute books now, we still have a long way to go.
1: Exactly.
2: Um, but... She would also, you know, if she couldn't get that big picture to work, she was uh, she would sort of, you know, incrementally sort of knock against that huge marble face. So doing things like ensuring women had the right to their own earnings was Mm -hmm. one law that she was involved with in Chicago, for example. Um, So a huge legacy. And she continued campaigning politically right into her 70s, you know, ensuring that laws were not rolled back you know, her personal case as a wife who'd been committed on the say-so alone of her husband that she was mad, she changed that law
1: um,
2: so that uh, people had to have a jury trial. Um, Women had to have a jury trial as well, which was what happened in Illinois at that time. Men got a jury trial so their peers could assess whether or not they were mad. Women didn't get that until Elizabeth
1: got involved. Wow.
0: What a brain and what a legacy! Yeah, Yeah. and her her energy and her brain, yeah, Yeah. just amazing.
1: Well, you know she is inspiring, and we need her inspiration right now. But I and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I want to talk about first um, the way that you wrote this book was incredible, Mm -hmm. and that was one reason I Mm -hmm. wanted to talk to you as well. Is because um, this book. Is nonfiction. It is. It is all fact, but it really reads like a novel. You really weave those historical facts together so seamlessly. You are a storyteller. You are a master storyteller. It's a page turner. It's a page turner. You is. know. And, yes. And you don't often get that with history books. <laughs> when you find one that's a page turner, even you're if better...
0: you know the punchline yeah, that she gets out, you're yeah. still
1: how you know just yeah. So I w- just want to ask you about how you did that and how, if you have any you know thoughts or, or ways or um, any advice for writers who are out there who are interested in writing this narrative nonfiction, and I think that's what you called it earlier narrative yeah, nonfiction. I love right. that I love that so can you speak to that a little bit
2: sure well I mean I think I as I say I am a storyteller at heart so it was hugely overwhelming taking on a history book um and I knew from the outset that the way I would tell these stories that I'm telling is in this narrative nonfiction way because, you know, I, you know it can be t- intimidating facing all these facts and, as I say, what I do front and centre is the personal stories and hopefully things that will impact people emotionally and, as you say, be a page turner, you know, ending chapters on a cliffhanger and, and so on and so forth. That, that's how I tell these stories. They're just based on facts um in terms of how I learned to do it I was you know did really benefit from my career as an editor because I edited a lot of narrative nonfiction um and memoirs and biographies and so I you know the books that I enjoyed working on the most were always the narrative nonfiction books um so I was inspired by all those books that I edited before I became a writer myself and then people like uh Ben McIntyre you know the way he weaves his sources into uh, narrative, um, you know, that that sort of thing. Those were, you know, he was a writer who inspired me to Mm. write *Radium Girls in the way that I wrote *Radium Girls. Um, You know, initially when I wrote that, I was trying to drop my sources into the running text. (laughs) It was very clunky and didn't work. And my husband went and pulled off a Ben McIntyre book off the shelf and says, look look how he's done his sources. You know, he had quotes, but then they were credited uh, as footnotes in the back. as opposed to trying to work the source into the text. So
0: much more easy for the reader to become part of the story. Exactly,
2: exactly. So the quotes are fully integrated. Um, And I think for me, in terms of how I do it, what's important to me, I I think having access to the intimate first-person accounts that I have done with both the books is essential. Mm. Because if you're quoting first-person material, you do really get that immediacy that you're hearing from the person in the past, whose story it was. And I think probably the, the most critical thing that has inspired the way I write and tackle these historical subjects is actually the ghostwriting work that I did, yeah. which I took on after I left my editing job. I became a ghostwriter as one of the many jobs that I was doing.
1: Yeah. But
2: when you're a ghostwriter, you go and sit with a person who has a story to tell And you sit on a sofa with them and you have a cup of tea and you chat with them and you record the conversation. And then when you go and write their story, you try and use their words as much as possible so that it sounds like them. You know, the turn Mm. of phrase that they use. My job as a ghostwriter is to impose the narrative structure of chapter breaks, cliffhangers. Where is the drama Mm. in this story? How do I keep people turning the pages? But you ha- it is all inspired and based on those one-on-one conversations that you then take that and build it into the story. And I think for me, as a history writer, what I do when I'm poring over the sources is I'm trying to have that chat on the sofa with the people that I'm writing about, which is why those first-person quotes are so essential because that's them telling me over a cup of tea, mm-hmm. in air quotes, what happened to them. And so I think I bring that ghostwriting approach to my history writing. And I think that's why I've been able to, or I focused on these intimate personal narratives that I've written, even though I'm writing about people who are long dead. Mm. um, I hope they seem immediate because Mm. I'm sharing their voices and giving their voices a platform to be heard.
0: Kate what I wouldn't give to see those little bits of paper and things she stuffed yeah. in her bonnet bands and do you, do you think they they yeah. exist anywhere or do you think she wrote them up and then tossed it I just would an exhibit know. that would make to be able I to I mean we were chatting earlier about you know
2: how did the, the, did the word survive? Well, the word survived in her publications but there isn't an Elizabeth Packard special collection so I have never seen the original scraps I've only got the type you know um, yeah the type set. yeah
1: uh
2: you know books that she published
1: road trip um,
2: for sure <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean my fear is that the you know that they are long gone oh,
1: yeah
0: yeah
2: burn, thrown away you know there isn't mm-hmm. an archive and you can't you know you can't imagine having you know, saved them through the asylum that she herself would have got rid of them. I, I'm assuming perhaps she kept them all that time. But having said that, you know, she traveled so much that, yeah. you know, you can't lug around thousands and thousands of pages of, of documents. So perhaps, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know whether she saved them or perhaps she thought, no, that book's done. It's out in the world. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. On. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened mm-hmm. to it, but it doesn't survive, unfortunately.
0: Oh. So, we're going to do it. We're going to ask this last question. This yeah. is this is the way we like to to end things. But, um, you know, this book it makes Crystal and I realize the rights we have as women today. And I think it's hard for any woman to read this without thinking about that. Um, and it makes it also very clear that these rights haven't even been in place all that long because mm-hmm. it took so long, even after this story, for those those things to change that Elizabeth hoped to change. Mm-hmm. So she herself lived from eighteen sixteen. To 1897. She died 125 years ago. She didn't even get to see all the changes that have come. She might still be rolling over in her grave with the things we're dealing with mm-hmm. in this day and age. <laughs> the amendments not ratified by all the states and all of that. Um, so, when reading this book, we were surprised, um, but perhaps shouldn't be by those lack of rights that women possessed then. And when writing the story, what what did you think about? that you wanted women to take away and to learn from Elizabeth's journey?
2: I hope people are inspired by her in whatever way it affects their own life, I think, because, I mean, Elizabeth sort of painted in broad strokes and was this huge figure on the national stage as it, as it turned out. But actually I think she's got lessons to teach us in a much smaller way as well, you know, one of the things that really resonated with me was she writes about how before she goes to the asylum, uh, she starts attending these Bible classes as part of her husband's church. And she writes about how to begin with, she doesn't feel that anything she has to say is worth saying or hearing. Mm. She, you know, she feels really small, you know, speaking up in class and she doesn't have the guts to do it. You know, she, she's got that sense of nothing I say is is worth saying or hearing. And then to see her journey from that position to a woman who is giving speeches in the Senate and, you know, changing the world. I think there's a really important lesson there for all of us, because I think we've all felt small and like what we had to say wasn't worth saying or hearing. And I hope people can be inspired, you know, to know that actually we're all worth something and we all have something to say on whatever scale it is. And so I hope people are inspired in that way. And I hope they're inspired by Elizabeth herself. She wrote so beautifully about women and how powerful we can be. One of my favourite quotes from her is, I will not hide my light under a bushel. I will set it upon a candlestick that it may give light to others. And I hope if people read the woman they could not silence, they'll be inspired by Elizabeth and allow her light to lead them into a brighter future for themselves.
1: Beautiful.
0: Beautiful. Mm-hmm. She, she was 43 when she went in, and she was 46 when she got out. So people, get out there. It's not too late. Right. I mean, come on. She, yeah. Look what she yeah. did after, after, after 21 years yeah. of marriage and yeah. three years in an asylum. I mean, right. Right, yeah, That's amazing. We loved this book and we look forward to reading more by you. Is there anything you're working on now that you can tell us about?
2: Um, I'm at the very early stage of researching ideas. So I've had a couple of ideas and I need to delve into them to see which one, if any of them are the right one for me to pursue next. Um, if anyone is interested in following my work, I have a website at www.kate-more.com. And you can sign up to my newsletter. Um, But I think the next book will probably be a couple of years yet, particularly because I haven't decided exactly which subject it is that I'm going to devote myself to. Hmm.
1: Well, I hope you continue to write about women um you do it so beautifully and thank um you. i am so looking forward to reading the radium girls now that's i'm gonna delve, delve into that one next thank so you. um so thank, thank you. You. that that's a huge that's a real passion project
2: for me the radium girls so you know yeah i I've, I've had, had so, so much
0: exposure to just your earlier podcasts where people are talking about it and it's just gotten such rave reviews yeah. um we're so excited by this one you're two for two so <laughs> we'll give you your time choosing your next project because we we know that it'll it has to be the right one
1: but we're we're excited for it so so don't wait too long (laughs) well (laughs) thank you so much kate and um we were so glad to have you here today
2: My
1: pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. Yeah, thanks, Kate. And thank you to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And if you are so inclined, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. It really helps us. So thanks for listening today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about the The dirt dirt on
0: the past. past. So thanks again, Kate Moore, for taking the time to talk with us about your book, The Woman They Could Not Silence, all about Elizabeth Packard. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music, and to John Chadwell for help getting the podcast out into the world.